0: Understanding, making
1: connections.
2: Good afternoon. You're listening to WVEW LP Brattleboro, 107.7 FM, your community radio station. It's streaming online at WVEW.org. This is Indigo Radio, Deepening, Understanding, Making Connections, on the air every Sunday at noon. We are a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can find us on Facebook at Indigo Radio and on Instagram. The views and and opinions expressed on this program are those of the hosts and guests and not the radio station. My name is Corey Sorensen, I'm a 4th grade teacher at Guilford Central School, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Michaela Sims and Anna Mulaney.
3: Good afternoon. Last week's show was on the Maricopa County Jail in Phoenix, Arizona, um, home of the now, what's the word, pardoned, that's the word I'm looking for, (laughs) Uh, Sheriff Joe Arpaio. And he headed that jail from 1993 to 2016. In case that you missed that show, you can check it out on our Facebook page, Indigo Radio. Um, today we'll be talking about the meaning of white supremacy, um, what whiteness means, and racism. And we're joined today in the studio with Joe Keedy, a current PhD student at UMass Amherst. And Joe was recently in Charlottesville during the... Unite the Right rally and Mike Sosak, who runs the restorative justice program at Brattleboro Union High School. We'll take a break and we'll be right back with our discussion on white supremacy and racism in the United States.
4: Sunday morning and the birds are lovely. Sunday morning and the birds are lovely. Sunday morning in the birds are <laughs>
0: All my raps whisper intelligence, Unrelenting irrelevance chiseled in the sediment. Letterman on the late night scene. You don't know the half, Mr. Bubble Bath. Epitaph jaded in the grass. What's that? A massacre, a mass appeal to Apple stores and raffle scores. I wonder who's gonna win the lottery. If Google Maps could see my house, yo, I wonder who was watching me. Satellite hypocrisy, like right up the block from me, right up the doctor feeds. Another brown boy down. Another mother crying, cause another brown boy found. And all you wanna do is smoke and write songs. Bang, bang sound like violence. Poverty was made to doorframe all the violence. Knock, knock, and guess who's not there? The police. And guess who don't care? The people.
5: Sunday, Sunday morning. And the
0: birds are lovely.
5: Sunday, Sunday morning.
0: And the birds are lovely.
5: Sunday, Sunday morning.
0: My mama love me and my granny love me Liquor is idolized. The government mastermind. Now that's the Illuminati and that's after your soul. Universal mind control. Let me see you, robot. Racism construct. Let me see you, robot. They would've ended war if war didn't make them rich. I ain't trying to help you smoke if you ain't trying to help me quit. Downtown dichotomy. I bet you I could politic. I could even paint Jackson where the Pollock sits. Baby Rabmo. Concrete Satchmo. Musicality. Travesty. I'm a photo. Shake me up. Like me glitter. Like me thinner. Recap gingerbread snap no opera or oxygen or darker skin i'm the training ground for a rainbow it's like pop pop skittle bag ask me where the riddle at and i'll serve you riddling. double coating and cinnamon no harmony's just synonyms. sunday hymns praise the lord and the drugs that raise me baptized in saline they found my parachute under the rubble i found redemption under the tunnels don't get trapped sunday sunday morning and the birds are
6: lovely
2: that was Sunday Morning by No Name Gypsy, and you are listening to Indigo Radio. Today we're discussing white supremacy and racism on the show with our guest Joe Keedy, a current grad student at UMass, and Mike Sostak doing restorative justice work at BUHS.
3: These words are often big words, and we all have our own definitions of them, so we're going to spend some time today really talking about what white supremacy means and what does racism mean and what do we, how do we conceptualize it in our day-to-day lives. Um, but first, we're going to start with Joe, who was just at the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. Um, can you just talk about your reactions to the, your time there, Joe?
5: Um, the rally, I mean, it's been so documented since then. Um, it was really as, as violent as you imagine. Um, really, it was sort of the... Uh, kind of logical fruition of a movement that is kind of by its nature, uh, inherently violent. I mean, they, they espouse, you know, these, the white nationalists really espouse a kind of eliminationist rhetoric in pursuit of a kind of separatist white ethno state. You know, it's kind of an inherently genocidal, uh, concept. Uh, it's not really, uh, it shouldn't really be that much of a surprise to people that, you know, violence is kind of, uh, front and center when they get together and, and do their thing.
3: What do you mean when you say violence? I feel like though we've heard that there's violence on all sides and that there's something called the alt-left and there's something called the alt-right. But when you talk about violence, what are you exactly referring to in terms of Charlottesville?
5: Well, in Charlottesville, it was sort of a, a really... Um... Tangible Kind of violence I mean it was people In the street With like With weapons You know uh, Macing each other And throwing things At each other And hitting each other And and using You know Flagpoles To kind of Attack each other uh, In one You know a Very well Documented case I mean they were Beating a a guy With with lead pipes And that kind of thing Who's they? Ah sorry They meaning A group of white nationalists And I mean Even if you look At kind of The leaders Of some of the organizations um, You know The people who you would think Would want to keep Their hands clean To kind of Create a better image I mean, these are the leaders of, of most of these organizations have either been charged with assault, or you know, at, oftentimes been uh, you know imprisoned for for things like armed robbery and that kind of thing. I mean, uh, so you know, actual real violence, you know, uh, of a of a unambiguous kind is is kind of really right uh, on the surface for them. As far as the uh, the idea of violence on both sides or this kind of idea of an alt left. Alt-left is sort of a concept that was sort of constructed pretty recently uh, as, I think, a way of kind of vilifying uh, left groups that are trying to push back against the kind of white nationalist surge that we've been seeing in recent years. I mean, I I personally don't really buy into this idea that uh, fighting back against a genocidal uh, movement is really violent unto itself i mean i would classify that more under self-defense you know maybe community self-defense of some kind but not really um you know i wouldn't really call it violence unto itself that makes sense
3: yeah that does make sense and i don't know mike if you have any comments about white supremacy or what you saw on at charlottesville on tv or because you said it's well documented or Corey or anna anyone
6: you know, my my view is I, I go back to, uh, you know, I work in a, in a high school predominantly white. I think I like to think of myself as somebody who recognizes um, my privilege as a white person that I can, if you will, get away with things that um, people who aren't of color can't. In t- in trying to teach restorative justice in the high school and work with kids, you know what happened in Charlottesville and what happened in other places in the country is uh, is is the opposite of what I try to teach, um, and uh, and the way things are being handled. Um, you know, I try to working with kids in the high school, regardless of color, try to turn an experience, something that happens, an incident, into a learning experience. Um, whereas what's happening in Charlottesville and other places in the country is really a, a very punitive, punishing approach to people trying to get their way with things. And um, and is the opposite of what restorative work is all about, and what I at least what I try to do in the high school, and what I try to teach kids. So, um, my my comments are really general, but uh, but that's that's how I react to what happened in Charlottesville.
3: I think that from my perspective, it's an extreme event, and the marching and the flames um, really do elicit violence, even without the weapons, just because the history of this, what's happened in this country. And I think it does have something to do with all of us right here, right now. And in that regard, um, how do you connect what happened there to everyday racism? And how would y'all define white supremacy?
5: I would just go back in the first place to talking about what whiteness is to begin with. Um, You know, it's a kind of category that was established specifically to create a kind of us and them And an and us and them that were never intended to be Kind of, you know, equal cooperative parts But clearly on a kind of unlevel playing field uh, And it's, you know, that's that was the case in the beginning And it's still the case today uh, It's never really changed So, you know, you can't really have you, Obviously you can't have white supremacy Without whiteness in the first place But I don't think that you can actually have whiteness Without white supremacy either You know, because it's sort of part of the package This assumption that if there is a, a, a category of people who are white that they are necessarily you know kind of positioned as being sort of uh, in control but kind of being the the, the, the ones in, kind of in command of the, of the situation as far as how um, how the violence that we that we've seen in Charlottesville um, and the violence of kind of the alt-right and kind of neo uh, you know white nationalist movements, relates to everyday racism uh i mean they didn't come from nowhere you know they came from they they're they're people who kind of a lot of them came from uh gamergate is sort of like part of the background you know a lot of like men's rights activism kind of kind of people um people who've kind of been told all their lives that this is okay and they don't really haven't really had checks placed on their actions you know they're kind of um they're uh people who largely are very very privileged people in our society and who would just have been kind of told all along that it's okay, that that's okay for you to, you know, you kind of deserve this. You're kind of going to be rewarded no matter what you do.
3: And there's something has been taken from them, right? Like there, there's people taking, that want to take things.
5: Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, they're motivated by this sense of not just kind of, a kind of an aggrieved whiteness. You know, this idea that like they see, affirmative action programs, they see basically any kind of social program that helps non-white people, uh, or, or women, to be honest, um, you know, as being somehow necessarily taking away from them. And like, you know, it, when people say Black Lives Matter, that, that's kind of taken as like, well, you know, th- there's this sort of assumption that that somehow means that their lives are less, and you know, in a way that I think is never actually part of the idea of Black Lives Matter in the first place, but that's how they read it.
3: Anyone else? Mike, any thoughts?
6: No, this is a a number that's been bannied out, a number of people throw out. But I, when I'm talking to kids at the high school and talk about um, um, racial injustice, and I think about uh, the fact that I think it's the latest number is 63% of people in prison are people of color. Um, that to me is a pretty significant fact, uh, that we as a society, we discriminate clearly against people because of skin color. And uh, and that, in again, in my view, when Obama got elected, there was really not acceptance by many people of him being president, but it was, we're kinda in a situation where people found themselves, well, they can't vocally say that they're unhappy because he's a black man. They can't really express it that way because it's not acceptable. It's not politically uh, uh, acceptable, but, um, what happened with the most current election is that suddenly it became okay. It became okay to support, if you will, a white supremacy kind of view. And um, and it became acceptable for many people. They didn't have to put it in those terms, but their voting showed it in those terms. and uh, And... Uh, At least I I think part of that, that's what happened and and what has happened
2: to it. I guess I just wanted to add too that when I think of white supremacy, I think of the context of growing up, well in Utah, in a mostly white place, and also teaching in Vermont as a mostly white place, that people are taught in schools that white supremacy is this prejudice or hatred towards people of color. And that's what racism is. So then people grow up to say, well, I'm not racist. I don't really hang out with racists because uh, racism is just when you hate people of color. When I think that ignores the whole systematic and institutionalized racism, uh, which people are playing into even if they consider themselves a not racist.
3: I think that that's a really complex idea, uh, one that we're, that's foreign for many of us. The fact that we're taught white supremacy every day and that it is part of our economic system, too, uh, the divide and rule, from my perspective. Yes, yeah, such a profound <laughs> occurrence in our society to the point where it's, I don't think it's about hating other groups of people, but really preferring
2: white people, which is harder to see especially hard to see for white people who see their lives as so normal when, you know, I'm people, I don't think white people see themselves always as white. That's just normal. And it's how things are when maybe a person of color would see themselves and identify as black or it's like a different,
3: Right. I don't have a race. I'm just regular. I'm like everybody else. I've actually heard people say that to me. I'm like, oh,
2: okay.
5: (laughs) I do think of of white supremacy is largely made up of kind of a whole series of assumptions, you know, assumptions that like, if you go into a black neighborhood, it's necessarily poorer or more dangerous or something like that. And if you're, you know, if you're among white people, that it's kind of safer. And like you say, this is just what's normal. Yeah.
2: So we're going to transition into a song now and then we'll come back to our conversation about whiteness and this song is Mississippi Goddamn by Nina Simone.
1: Ooh, I like that one. The name of this tune is Mississippi Goddamn. And I mean every word of it. Alabama's got me so upset, Tennessee made me lose my rest, and everybody knows. Don't tell me, I'll tell you Me and my people just about do I've been there so I know Keep on saying, go slow lines school boycotts they try to say it's a communist plot all i want is equality for my sister my brother my people and me yes you lied to me all these years you told me to wash and clean my ears and talk real fine just like a lady and you'd stop calling me the city. Oh, this whole country is full of lies.
3: And we're back, this is WVEW 107.7, Brattleboro Community Radio. And we're back with Joe Keady, PhD student at UMass Amherst, and Mike Sosak, head of the restorative justice program at Brattleboro Union High School. Um, We were just listening to Mississippi Goddamn by Nina Simone, and it's quite a song, one that actually ruined her career in many ways. really highlights what ha- was happening in Mississippi in terms of white supremacy and the oppression of people of color there. I think it's really important for us to think of white supremacy as a divide and rule tool of the current economic system. How do you all think of what you were taught about whiteness and what it means to be white? And sorry to put you all on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the current um kind of manifestations of guilt and shame that white people feel that sometimes even lead to white supremacy.
5: Um for me personally, I didn't I grew up thinking I was Irish. I didn't grow up thinking of myself as white at all. I mean, I my dad was was from overseas my mom's parents were from overseas i mean it, i was i was pretty old before i realized that like as far as the rest of the world is concerned i'm i'm just white that's it you know nobody really cares about that and that i mean how can i say it i mean you know growing up in like the 70s and 80s when uh, there was this kind of really hot there was a lot of real violence that involved a lot of my um you know i mean deadly violence you know in some cases uh in a little corner of the world where a lot of my family was from you know, I always thought like, well, this is a thing, right? I mean, everybody's, um, don't you all know that like, you know, my family's in danger all the time and I'm living with this constant thing, you know, but like, really that's not, that wasn't actually a real life thing that I was experiencing and it was this sort of abstraction. And it took me a long time growing up to actually figure out that like, I live in the United States and I get all the, these kind of special kind of privileges that I have nothing really to do with anything that I've done, you know, um,
3: is your family from Northern Ireland? Is that what you're referring
5: to? Yeah, well, partly, yeah. Um, part of my my mom's father was from the North. You know, so that was co- kind of a constant thing, a kind of constant uh, topic at home, you know. Um, but it doesn't really translate to the rest of the world. It doesn't really mean anything. Like in the United States, I walk out the door and I still get every, you know, I might have family somewhere who's kind of suffering for, for who they are and all this kind of thing, but... Um, here that's just not the case so it kind of took me a long time to figure out like oh right i'm white and that this means x y and z in the place where i am just wasn't so obvious um based on like kind of what i learned at home as far as guilt i don't i mean that's kind of hard to i mean you know being irish it also meant that i grew up catholic so guilt is kind of second nature but (laughs) um but that's kind of even apart from, you know, racial issues. I have to really think about that. Like, how does that factor in? I may, I may get back to you on that.
3: Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. I think that it's, and it's not something we're taught to think about, uh-huh. but I think that one of the, one of the things that I've talked to white folks about when they're really grappling with racism is guilt. And I think that, Mike, you had something, some thoughts about that?
6: Yeah, I, um, I was in a meeting not too long ago, and uh, a woman was speaking and, talk- and telling a story. And, uh, and in-, in telling the story, she mentioned um, that the person that she was talking about was black. And so I was waiting for that connection of being black to be connected to something, and it wasn't. It was just she said the person was black. And, but it seemed to be really important for her to say that. And I know her well enough that I think, again, I am guessing here, but I'm I'm guessing that she just, it was like, and I find myself doing that sometimes, I want to show that I'm not connected with these white people that do these bad things. I'm not a part of that. And... Uh, and I, it, you know, it, it's easy to fall into that. I find myself falling into that. I'm embarrassed. I'm more than embarrassed. I, I actually am really disgusted with some of the things going on, and and I don't want to be connected with that. And I want to sort of shout it out. I'm not, I'm not a part of that. I'm not a part of that way of thinking. But it's hard to express. It's hard to get that message out. And uh, so, but there's definitely at times guilt and shame on my part just because I'm white and uh, and I know I have privileges um that other people who aren't white uh you know don't have
2: and speak a little bit about what my experience was growing up mm-hmm. where I mean as I was l- listening to both of you and thinking about my early experiences of race I I really wasn't explicitly taught about race at all and I I didn't think that I had to confront it very much, but I mean, I was also at the same time uh, being taught all kinds of ideas about what race is. And I thought of race basically as a biological thing where genetically and biologically, my race defined who I was and how I was different from other people. And it came up a lot in church for me. I was raised Mormon and grew up in Utah. And as some people know about the Mormon church, people of color weren't allowed to hold priesthood into the church until the civil rights movement. And I saw that as an ancient thing that went back to the 12 tribes of Israel, where my race was basically different than other people's. I mean, as I grew older, and it wasn't even really until college that I learned that race is not biological and that it's only skin deep and that genetically... Michaela and I can have more in common than Mike or Joe and I, and that racism, that race was created as a way to divide people that could potentially um, come together to fight or combat the elite. But also, I mean, in church, I was, t- I was taught that, that different races shouldn't get married to each other, that that was, would cause too much problems culturally, and it, there was this really separatist view and I, so I thought of myself as other than, or on some level better than, especially because in my material reality around me, there were, like in my schools, they were so separated. There was a, there was a large um, like Latino population at my school when I was going to school in Southern California, and uh, the classes were divided. And if I was in a class that was largely Latino, I thought that I was in the wrong place, and I thought... I thought that I saw people as less than, or not as smart, or, and, I mean, I've grown to learn that that that's absolutely not true.
3: So, we're going to go to a song break, uh, no, a PSA. Both. Both, I've been told. (laughs) All right, here we go. This is WVEW,
4: 107.7. How to explain white supremacy to a white supremacist. (laughs) Sometimes you are a lit match dropped into a boiling ocean. Sometimes you are a stray dog proud of the sunrise after a long night of barking at the moon. Sometimes you scream at the television, shadow box mushroom clouds, your hand-to-hand hatred outclassed, outdated. You, post-apocalyptic litter bug. You, venomous spider in the basement of a burning building. You, whose anger is so vast and so empty, all teeth and no mouth, no jaw muscles, just that white rattle, remember, white supremacy is not a shark it's the water it is how we talk about racism as white hoods and confederate flags knowing that you own those things and we don't as if we didn't own this history too this system we tread water and you chum in a bucket how many skinheads do you think are in the room when they set immigration law Or decide curriculum for public schools Or push policies like redlining Mandatory minimum sentencing Benign neglect Gentrification Broken windows Policing Voter ID Stop and frisk Three strikes The drug war Remember The eye of the hurricane Is the least destructive part You Meanest glare in the chat room All poker face And no cards Was it your politically incorrect YouTube comment That made the median net worth Of black families in this country 9% The median net worth Of white families Which individual Donald Trump bigot boogeyman are we supposed to be angry at about the millions of people impacted by discrimination in housing and banking and education and employment in the criminal justice system each year? Remember, sharks kill about one person each year. Thousands drown. So when there is a new name hashtagged each week, when police create more black stars than Hollywood, how long do we keep pointing out the bad apples? Ignoring the fact that the orchard was planted on a mass grave. And that we planted it there. Because, of course, this isn't really a poem for white supremacists, right? Like, I don't know any white supremacists, but I know a lot of people in my neighborhood and in my family, and and I know myself, and I know how white supremacy is upheld, whether through our action, our inaction, or just through paying our tuition and taxes, how it isn't just the broken treaty, it is also the treaty, how a gavel can speak as loudly as a grenade, how a white frat boy in blackface on Halloween and his friend who knows it's wrong but doesn't say anything begins to blur together, how the real racists today are very often not even racist those teeth sharper when smiling, sharper still when smiling and meaning it. A burning cross is so dramatic. Just say, I don't see race. Just say, we all have an equal chance if we just work hard. Just say, all lives matter, just say nothing. Surround yourself with others who say nothing and convince yourself that silence is the only song, this muted underwater melody, this pulsing quiet. And when a chorus blooms in Baltimore, when trumpets sound in Ferguson, in Minneapolis, when every one of our cities breaks into song, will we hear it? Will we choose to listen? Or will we just continue treading water watching for that great white shark, not realizing that we're drowning.
2: Welcome back. You're listening to WVEWLP Brattleboro, 107.7 FM, your community radio station. This is Indigo Radio, and this week we're talking about uh, whiteness and white supremacy. So before we went off to that spoken word by... Guante, we, we started touching on the conversation of guilt and white guilt, and during the spoken word, we had a conversation in the studio about white guilt. So I thought we'd bring it, the conversation back to that. Joe, I don't know if you had any thoughts to get us started. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I
5: just, you know, I, I, sort of, I sort of punted a little while ago, it was sort of, a, you know, couldn't really Quite get my head around it for a second, but I mean, I just was thinking after that that I mean, when we feel guilty about something, when we when we uh, you know, particularly like when we're as white people, when we feel guilty about some kind of racist thing that has slipped out or something that we've done, you know, it it kind of often has this way of making it this real personal thing that like we you know we personally have had this this moral failing, we've we've fallen down on the job somewhere, you know, and I mean, it's perfectly fine to be, to reflect on that kind of thing. And and we all need to kind of work on this, you know, on a personal level for sure. But also that has sometimes a a way of obscuring the fact that we, that we have much larger kind of, kind of social structures in place that enforce a kind of racist world. You know, it's not just a matter of like, if I personally get all my uh, ducks in a row and can say all the right things all the time, that somehow it's going to fix a kind, of, um, a kind of a kind of a mindset that kind of permeates the whole culture and has done so for hundreds of years you know um, we do have to work on that on an individual level absolutely but it it's not um, it's not just that if we just stop there then we kind of are kind of guaranteeing that future generations are going to be dealing with the same things over and over again
2: I just think that white people have been taught to be, to take everything, like you said, so personally or on an individual level, and to be so caught up in their feelings and emotions about everything, and really to be self indulged and talk about themselves. So when I think about white guilt and grappling with like the feeling bad of what white people have done uh, in our history or what they're continuing to do today, I guess I think of looking at whiteness as as something that's based in a a real context in the world and becoming aware of your own whiteness in that larger context and being a person who commits to a just society rather than somebody who is taking something that's happening and reacting to it personally and thinking of themselves in a superior position.
6: Oh, it's about 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago that I became involved with restorative work. And if I think back to that, prior to that time, my feelings of guilt as a white, white person and what was going around on around me was uh, pretty predominant in what I did. And what what I found with the restorative work is a way, as others today have mentioned, uh, it was a way of turning my guilt, if you will, my own uh, my own feelings really about myself into some real action to do something hopefully constructive. And uh, so actually in some ways my guilt has become a, a catalyst or a way to kind of spur me on to do something to actually take some real action and that's what I've tried to do both in the community in restorative work and in the high school so
2: so speaking of uh, white guilt and taking action we're living in times where monuments are coming down all across the United States monuments that stood for um, people who were of the Confederate movement and, and racists and their were two great-great-grandsons of Stonewall Jackson who wrote an open letter and were recently guests on Democracy Now! where they talked about uh, the taking down of the Stonewall Jackson statue. Their names are Warren Christian and Jack Christian, and we're going to play a clip of them reading the letter on Democracy Now!
7: Dear Mayor Lavar Stoney, that's the mayor of Richmond, and members of the Monument Avenue Commission, we are native Richmonders and also the great-great-grandsons of Stonewall Jackson. As two of the closest living relatives to Stonewall, we are writing today to ask for the removal of his statue, as well as the removal of all Confederate statues from Monument Avenue. They are overt symbols of racism and white supremacy and the time is long overdue for them to depart from public display. Overnight, uh, two nights ago now, Baltimore has seen fit to take this action. Richmond should, too. In making this request, we we wish to express our respect and admiration for Mayor Stoney's leadership while also strongly disagreeing with his claim that removal of symbols does nothing for telling the actual truth. Nor changes the state and culture of racism in this country today. In our view, the removal of the Jackson statue and others will necessarily further difficult conversations about racial justice. It will begin to tell the truth to, It will begin to tell the truth of all of us coming to our senses.
3: And we're back. This is WVEW uh, LP, Brattleboro. Uh, our comedia radio station. Um, we're back with Joe Keedy and Mike Sosak. Um, we've been talking about white supremacy and racism, and that was a clip of Stonewall Jackson's great-great-grandson reading an open letter that they wrote for the removal of the Confederate statues and all Confederate statues. I think that this is an interesting scenario because... This my first time in New England. I was really shocked by the pride that people have of being of being the founders or being related to the founders of towns or um, having streets named after their families with no almost no historical connection that there were people here before. Um, not that there should be shame around that, but I don't know about. Pride around that, either, and it's something that people really clutch to. So I think it's very interesting that these brothers are saying like, that we're not ashamed of our grandfather, but we don't believe that these great grandfather, but we don't believe that our, these symbols should stand. Um, are there any comments, or either one of anyone have any thoughts about that?
5: Um, just that, yeah, they don't, there, there isn't a need to feel really ashamed of something you didn't really have any control over. I mean, people, this is a thing that comes up a lot in kind of white nationalist forums is that like, I'm not guilty for this thing that my great, great, great grandparents might have done, you know, that sort of sidesteps the whole point. I mean, the, 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 really the thing is just that we have to actually recognize that, that history has happened, that things have happened, that, you know, there were people in New England before there were Europeans that, you know, people's great, great, great grandparents did, own other people and that you know we can't really work on addressing the uh, the ramifications of that generations later until we at least in the first place acknowledge that they happened that's just sort of a first step toward dealing with it
3: I, I think that it's really kind of ironic because as a person of color growing up one of the things you have to unlearn is shame because what you're taught right away is shame you're not you're not light enough, your hair is not right, like, why is your hair like that? Oh, can I touch it? Uh, you know, other people, like, what are you eating? There's this whole um, barrage of things that you get, actually, from your, when you're really small about not being quite right. And so, in the process of learning that, not to be ashamed, then there's this other which is, can be a long process that some people don't ever get through, and then the the other side of that is that when white folks realize that there's racism, then they feel shame, and so in that way, it's not productive unless we can recognize what purpose does racism serve, and what purpose does white supremacy serve in the economic system that it's not about me as an individual, and so the first time I saw the Confederate flag being worn by a student at the school where I work did not does not, does not impact me the way it doesn't impact me the way it does. The, la- the last time I saw it, it had no impact on me almost whatsoever because I have kind of teased out and disconnected it from a personal attack on me. Uh, I think that I see it as a historical symbol of racism, but that individual it doesn't get a rise out of me because it it doesn't serve a purpose unless we can really, really analyze, well, what is the point of racism? Why are you wearing that symbol? What does it mean to you? And how are we both being victims of the same system?
6: I do, uh, though, thinking about uh, what we just listened to, um, about the statues being removed. It it does make me think about um, symbols though and I kind of connect that to labels that get attached to people and labels, once it's attached to somebody, start carrying their own meaning regardless of what the person really is. And I think it's one of the most harmful things we do to well, kids, I think about kids in the school system, but kids and adults where we, once you get labeled, you have this definition that's attached to you and i I see statues and symbols the same kind of thing it 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 conveys a thought it conveys a meaning that uh, can be really hurtful and and quite harmful
3: I think that's true um, and I I don't wouldn't ima- I can't imagine having to walk past a confederate statue every day to go to school. I mean, I think that that would be horrific. Um, just like in South Africa, the same thing. Colonial statues are coming down. Um, because people don't want to go to school every day
2: with roads looming over them. You know what it's interesting, too? Just this last year was my first year teaching fourth grade, and... As you were saying that, I was thinking about the statues and monuments in Brattleboro of like all the English colonizers. and uh, A lot of my students this last year learned that they have French Indian ancestry, and they were targeted by the Vermont Eugenics um, Program, or their ancestors were targeted by the Vermont Eugenics Program, and now they have to realize or walk through Brattleboro, the streets of these, this town, um, with that same... That same feeling. It's just a, a thought that I have.
3: Does anyone else have any thoughts about what needs to be done today to reject white supremacy or any manifestations you see in day-to-day life that you have openly fought against?
5: One thing that that became really apparent to me immediately after Charlottesville, uh, particularly in social media, I started noticing, um, and this is not the first time this has happened. This sort of comes up when when big uh, events like this come around a lot of white people in my feed in my like facebook feed and all this you know we're going oh my god i can't believe this happened i don't recognize this like you know we're really surprised and shocked and amazed and um and a lot of black people i knew were, were kind of going well really though like this is kind of not a surprise at all you know to us i mean i i think kind of feel like that's kind of a uh a, a, a major uh component a step that needs to be taken is um really in the first place you know for white people to recognize this kind of thing and actually start working on it ourselves i mean we i think that i think what white people have this tendency to often want to just sort of outsource the work around um, undoing racism to the people who are the objects of racism, you know, and, and kind of leave it to somebody else to kind of call us on it when we, when we do something wrong and not actually take the time to kind of look at, um, you know, the way that, that we all all actually kind of play into the structures that perpetuate it. Um, you know, uh, reflexive support for, for, uh, certain kinds of like crime bills or, or heavy handed policing, that kind of thing, you know, There's there's lots of uh, institutional things like that that I think just kind of don't, that kind of escape the notice of white people very often that need to just start being acknowledged.
6: I was in a um, meeting not too long ago, and I was kind of called out after the meeting by one of the participants saying that I was bringing politics into the meeting and um, because I was talking about an issue about um, how people were being treated. And... Um, and what that says to me is that, or at least my view is that human decency, treating people in a decent way is not politics. And in terms of what we do, I think it's important that all of us bring the concept of human decency into everything we do and every group we participate with Um and that we not let it be labeled as a political issue.
3: I always question, like, what does it mean when people say, like, don't bring politics
2: in? What do they?
3: What are they? I don't understand that.
2: Well, they're being political, saying that statement.
6: <laughs> <laughs> what did she when when she said that to me? Well, it's obviously not what I view. I you know as um, I guess you could you could label anything politics I mean politics in fact at one point I looked up the definition and I don't have it in front of me or does the word politics mean and the definition was such that you could bring anything and label it as politics and I think what's happened is we when we got a subject that's uncomfortable and people don't really want to talk about in certain groups they label it as politics because then they don't have to talk about it and um I think that's in the in this example I cited um I think that's exactly what happened. It was I, an uncomfortable subject. It made her uncomfortable. she didn't mm-hmm. want to go there and um so I think
2: it's a really um liberal political thing to not want to talk about politics mm-hmm. and for there to always be this state of equilibrium mm-hmm. equilibrium where where uh no point of contention can come up so when I said. That's a political statement, I meant. I mean, that's a really liberal thing to do.
3: Yeah, I feel like almost everything that I talk about all the time is politics. (laughs) Because how can you not talk about power and power relations, especially when you're talking about race or racism, especially when you're talking about social issues, especially when you're talking about what's going on in a town or in any organization? There's a hierarchy and there's power. Uh, And some people have it and some people don't. And we always know who those people are. It's not a secret. Um, but I think that this is such a complicated issue. And it's one that we've been taught is foreboding. Like we're not supposed to talk about race. Uh, we're not supposed to talk about class. And we're not definitely not supposed to talk about them both together. But... As we go out today, if they, are there are any last comments, I mean we were supposed to talk about a little bit about anti racism, which is something that I really need to be schooled on because I don't know what that is um, but if there are any final comments that either of you have, I would love to let you close out the show for us today
5: I, I guess just one quick thought about anti racism just to touch on it um, i don't personally, I subscribe to the idea that you can't you sort of can't be white or or somehow white identified as and and be sort of just instantly not racist because you're so good and and have figured it all out you know the only way to really do it is to work uh or to at least approach it is to kind of work at being explicitly anti-racist you know you can't you can't just just magically get it all right all the time you know without some real effort and some some kind of real kind of reflection and probing and working on it
3: oh okay so so you're saying that instead of saying you're not racist it's a being anti-racist is a process
5: yeah a con- okay. kind of constant ongoing process and it, and it you know and it it involves kind of screwing up and actually hearing it when people tell you that you screwed up among other things
6: and i think it involves what we're doing here today too i mean in some ways i'm uncomfortable being here i'm uncomfortable because i'm not sure I'm not sure how to handle things completely I'm, I'm myself, and uh, uh, so I still struggle with my own actions and how to handle them and, and what my, my views are. So I, um, I think it's really important to have forums like this to talk about this.
2: Well, that's all we have time for today. Uh, thank you for joining us on Indigo Radio. Next week, join Nick and Becca, where they will talk about Lebanon and...
7: That's
2: it. it. (laughs) There will also be a whiteness city group at Antioch University.
3: Is it university?
2: Yeah, check details. It's going to be at Antioch College. Details will be on the, um, we can post on Indigo Radio's Facebook page. And details will also be on Brattleboro Solidarity's Facebook.
3: So if you want to keep talking about racism with a small group, it's very intense and open to all I think. Don't quote me.
4: That anyone anywhere is offended The outrage about the outrage When it's about race is endless White people on Twitter are defensive Playing devil's advocate in your mentions And they'll probably check out before they empathize Cause white people on Twitter don't like to be generalized that's the greatest thing you can commit Grouping people together is at the source of all of this Also, the white people on Twitter say Just stop talking about racism and it will go away Right? Love and light, it's not complex Like a Martin Luther King quote Out of context Yeah, they got a lot of quotes Lined up like dominoes Arguing with Ta-Nehisi Coates White people on Twitter have feelings White people on Twitter have feelings, so many feelings So it's doubtless that every conversation is in orbit around them And I can hear them saying right now Whatever dude, you're white too, I'm like true, I ain't full blooded But I am a little bit enough that white kids still listen to my ish. White people on Twitter are my fan base. White people on Twitter self-deprecate. But this is bigger than saying the right things on the right platform. This is about how we transform. When police kill a black child, white people on Twitter stay quiet. Funny how they got so much to say. Smith, you mention a racial bias. Or soon as a protest turns to a riot That's when they'll talk about violence But not a peep for the blood in the street Or the av when it's drawn by a thug with a badge And I know white people on Twitter aren't evil Racism's bigger than bigotry, it's a history But white people on Twitter tell me all lives matter The newspaper disagrees The nightly news disagrees The statistics disagree The lived experience of millions of our neighbors disagrees So who do you believe?